It's long been said that children are our most valuable resource. Children are our future. And today's children are tomorrow's leaders. All true statements. But children are also among our most vulnerable populations. Data gathered from back in 2019 showed that over 5,600 North Carolina children were found to be victims of neglect, physical, or sexual abuse. The good news is there is a plethora of agencies and dedicated people working diligently to make that number a downward trend and to provide resources for child victims. One of those people is our guest for podcast episodes this entire month as April is dedicated Child Advocacy Month. Whitney Bellish is the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. In that capacity, she serves as a resource to assist prosecutors across the state by providing training in the prosecution of cases involving abuses of children. She serves as a resource for law enforcement, social service workers, and other allied professionals. Quentin, um, turn around, I was driving down Quentin, I'm turning around to see if I can find him again. This is at Clover, subject to 1074, Once again, we are pleased to welcome back Whitney Belich from the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. On our first episode, we kind of gave it an overall view about how the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys can assist law enforcement talked a little bit about the job of the Department of Social Services and the Child Advocacy Centers. Whitney, today I would like to focus more on the investigative standpoint. First and foremost, let me welcome you back to this second episode. Thank you, Kirk. I'm happy to be here. So as we begin to talk about investigations involving child maltreatment, In our first episode, we talked about how complicated those can be and how many different resources can can be brought in and a little bit about the interviewing process. But today, I really want to zero in on the investigative process. So my first question to you would be to the law enforcement folks who are listening, what do they need to know about child maltreatment? Well, I think the first thing that's most important is that every officer needs to be on the lookout for child maltreatment. Sometimes we feel like it is only the job of the detective who's assigned to the special victims unit or um, just the detective in general who may have to look into child maltreatment or be on the lookout for the signs and symptoms of child abuse and neglect. But the truth is, is that law enforcement is one of the most important reporters that we can possibly have when it comes to child abuse. And so being observant on a scene, not just a scene where they're called out specifically for a child-related situation, but really any scene that a law enforcement officer may respond to, a car wreck, a noise complaint, drug use at a house, a house party, all sorts of things may cause an officer to interact with a child. And they may actually have the ability to see a child in a scenario or in a situation that no one else gets to see them in except for their parent. And unfortunately, a parent is often the abuser. 
And so they may be in a position to see a house or see a child when no one else has the capability to do that. And so it's really important that law enforcement be kind of on the lookout for the possible red flags or signs that a child may be abused, not only when they're responding out to suspected abuse, but also when they're just out in the community, out going to calls for service to make sure that they're always on the lookout for these children that may be abused because they may be the only ones in a position to say anything or do anything about that abuse. Well, let's help them out and and get a little bit more specific if you could. What should officers be looking out for when they're responding to scenes where a child is present? So law enforcement should ask to see the child when they respond to a house or respond to a car wreck. Uh, Even if the call is not related to the child, if they're in a position where they can, they know there's a child in the house and let's say that there's a call about drug use or noise complaint, there's been a big fight, uh, even if nobody has said anything about the child being involved or in any way, asking to see the child can allow them to just put eyes on the child and make sure that the child isn't suffering from some injury, but also just kind of get an interaction with that child and find out what what more is going on. So that's an important part is just asking to see the child and making sure that the child is at least immediately safe and that sort of thing. But they can also be looking for things on the child as they interact with them in, in whatever scenario they may be interacting with them. And this also goes for school resource officers who are really in interacting with children the most. Uh, and so looking out for these things and these signs of possible child abuse and maltreatment is important for everybody who may interact, interact with children. Another thing that a lot of folks talk about looking for is bruises in abnormal places. That is usually, you know, I have a five-year-old. She's got bruises constantly on her shins and things like that. And so kids that are, especially young kids that are mobile and active, they're going to have bruises and, and they're going to be areas of them that are typically bruised <laughs> for active children. But there are areas of the body that it is, there should not be bruising or that there's not normally going to be bruising unless they've been in a car wreck or something like that, something fairly serious. And that's bruising on the torso, on the main part of their body on their ears, and on their neck. Bruises in those areas of children are concerning. Again, there may be a logical explanation, but those are not frequently places where children get bruises. And those are frequently places where we see bruises on children who are the victims of abuse in their home or in another place. And then any bruises on a child that's non-mobile, the saying that we have is if it doesn't cruise, it doesn't bruise meaning if the child isn't moving on their own, if they're not at least crawling or uh, holding on to something as they walk, something like that, then they shouldn't have any bruises on their body at all. Again, is it possible that they could have a bruise somewhere and it could be a perfectly innocent explanation? Of course there is. But that's something that we want to look into, that we want to ask more questions about, look into a little bit further, because again, that can be a very concerning side of abuse if there is a bruise on a child that is not moving on their own. Another thing that we want them to look for if they're in the home is, is does the child have a safe place to sleep? Especially when we're talking about an infant, you know, having a designated space. Again, we're not looking to judge people's parenting. We're not looking to make sure, you know, is the house clean and, and you know, is this ideal? Does it have a lovely nursery? That's not what we're really doing. We're not judging anybody's parenting, but we do want to make sure that the child has a safe place to sleep because, 
there are unfortunately quite a few infant deaths that occur because the child does not have a safe place to sleep. Uh, and anything like that that a officer encounters is something that should be a red flag and should cause them to maybe maybe call CPS, get CPS involved, have them at least look over, ask some questions, and look into the situation if they notice that the child doesn't have a place to sleep. And then the last thing that they may really want to look for is, you know, the emotional state of the child. If the child is especially fearful, overly emotional, clingy in a way that is not typical, or just kind of sends up a red flag or causes an officer to think twice about, you know, why is this child, why are their emotions inappropriate for the situation? That's definitely something they want to look for. One thing that's come up a lot in cases, like I know that when I was working as a prosecutor, that we would have meth cases um, where they had some sort of lab in the house and the children were just sort of walking around freely. And so that's another thing officers want to look for is are there are drugs secured? Are there pills laying around? Are there weapons laying around the home? Because those can turn deadly in a moment. And so knowing that there are children in the home should cause officers to do a double take and potentially contact CPS if they do notice that there's unsecured drugs or weapons in the house where a child lives. Well, you touched on this just a bit when you started answering my question, but I want to make sure that the cops on the street truly understand why it's important for all officers to expand their knowledge on child maltreatment and not just the guys in criminal investigations. It's extremely important because people in criminal investigations, unfortunately, they're coming in once something bad has already happened. Uh, if a detective is there, that's because there's been a serious injury or a death to a child, and by then it may be too late. So what we want to do is have officers who are in the position to go out to these calls. You know, they get a call that the neighbors are fighting again, and they go out there, or they get called to a car wreck. These sorts of things may not automatically sort of, you know, flip up the warning, warning, neon sign of child abuse. Uh, you know, they get a call that there's drug use constantly going on in this house next door. Those sorts of things are actually perfect situations to make sure that children are safe. And law enforcement obviously has a lot of things that they have going on at the time when they respond to those calls. I mean, there's you've got to deal with traffic if it's a car wreck and you've got to deal with officer safety when you go out to a domestic call and all those sorts of things. And Nothing should be taking away from any of those things. Officer safety is obviously a priority, but we also want to make sure that if we're in a situation where there's a child present, that we're taking a few moments to stop and look and see if that child is okay and see if there are any red flags or warning signs. Because again, a lot of children that are victims of abuse or neglect are isolated. They're not in a situation where they're having friends over to their house. They're not in a situation where the parent is acting the way that they do at home when they're in private. Uh, or when they're in public and they're around others. And so these officers may have be having an opportunity to see the child in these very private situations where no one else has been allowed to go. Even family members may not be allowed to be over or to see that area of the house. And so we want to make sure that if they're in the position to see these things and check on the child that they're doing that and that they're ensuring that the child is okay and that if there are red flags, they're the ones to take the make the phone call call CPS, get them involved. If there needs to be a criminal investigation, that they're doing that, even though that may not be why they were called there in the first place. Well, I'm in the back of my mind, it says don't go there, but I know that I need to, and I'm going to try to do it without cracking. I just 
recently read of a case, I think maybe the individual was sentenced for possibly second degree murder in a fentanyl related case where a two-year-old had just, just as you have so beautifully illustrated, talked about kids walking freely and this child had ingested fentanyl and unfortunately died as a result of that overdose. So we got to take it to this next level. How do things change if a child is seriously injured or killed at a scene? So unfortunately, that does happen. And sometimes the first responders that are out there are not going to be the detectives. They're not going to be the investigators. And it's really important that we respond to these scenes in a way from the first officer that gets there all the way through until the scene is, is opened again and the investigation has been completed. And so what we want to do is we want to prevent these things from happening in the first place. Obviously, all the things that I just talked about, all the abilities that DSS and the CACs and law enforcement and everyone involved has to sort of prevent these from getting to the nightmare scenario that you've described, where a child, whether it be an accident, where something could have been changed, a gun was left unintended, you know, unsecured, or drugs were left where a child could get to them, maybe that could have been prevented. Those are the sorts of accidents, you know, unsafe sleep accidents that happen where a child uh, can't breathe because they're not in a safe sleep situation. Those are the sorts of things that maybe we can prevent on the front end with those things that I already talked about. But there, of course, are unfortunately times when that just hasn't happened and a child is seriously injured or killed. So there are a lot of things that we want officers to do when they first get there. Whether they're the investigator or not, whether this is going to be their case or not, they may be in a position to really help the case going forward with what they do when they get there on the scene. And so the first thing is if a child is, is still living, um, if they are still uh, able to have a conversation or perhaps there are other children in the house, siblings or friends that were there, we want to make sure that officers know how to talk to children. Now, it's really important to point out that it takes a lot of training and there are specialized training courses that we do here in North Carolina that teach officers how to really interview children. So that's not what we're talking about here. There's no way that we could get to that point in this conversation. But it is really important that there are some like kind of big topic things that officers should make sure as they're talking to children. If they're the first ones on the scene and the children want to talk to them, then there are some things that officers should and should not do when they're when they're talking to children during an investigation. So the first thing is, you know, if the child does want to talk, then they should listen and actively listen. Make sure that they show an interest in what the child is saying. That encourages the child to keep speaking, to keep talking if they want to. The other thing is that if the child doesn't want to talk, the last thing an officer should do is try to make them, to try to encourage them over their own objections. And that's for a variety of reasons. I mean, sometimes it's going to be very traumatic for a child, but also because there may be a good reason that they don't want to speak. There may be somebody close by that they do not feel comfortable that would not be safe for them to speak around. And so we want to take notes from them and what they seem comfortable doing and not doing. There'll be an opportunity to speak to that child, hopefully in a safe and child-friendly environment at some point down the road at the CAC. So officers shouldn't try to get involved in speaking with a child that doesn't want to speak to them. If they do want to speak to them, they should ask them open-ended questions, you know, things like, tell me about whatever, just to allow them to kind of give their own story, give their own narration. Because what we don't want to do is ask leading or subjective questions. 
because that is when we get into, well, these ideas were planted in the child's head. And so we've had situations where, you know, one child is seriously injured and kill or killed. And we have someone speaking to the child at the scene who's saying, your dad hit your little brother, didn't he? That's a suggestive question. And we don't want to get into speaking like that to children because that's when we get into some problematic evidence issues. So we want to avoid those kinds of questions. We want to focus on questions of who, what, and where. So basically just gathering basic information. We're not going to try to like get into a deep interview with a child at the scene. It's going to be way too traumatic, way too much going on. Getting some basic information if the child seem willing, seems willing to talk is, is a good way to, to use that time. And the last thing is if the child starts becoming uncomfortable, seems to want to stop talking, then we should stop and not push them. Because again, we want to make sure the child is safe and the child may not be speaking in a safe environment. And so moving them to a place where they are safe and continuing a conversation at some point later is the best bet in that situation. So the other thing is that when I speak to people at the medical examiner's office and when I speak to other folks who are involved in child death investigations, a lot of times, especially because it's a child and especially because we're extremely emotional, the child, a child who is obviously deceased is moved anyway, is taken, is transported anyway. And even though that's obviously, you know, the best intentions are there for why that was done, it, it can cause some real problems down the road for the death investigation. And so if it's at all possible to leave things where they are, including the child, that's what we want to do. One thing that happens a lot with children is that their cause of death is not obvious immediately because children die in a variety, unfortunately, of, of ways. Um, and so a lot of times we just assume, well, it's a child, it must have been a terrible accident. And unfortunately, more, more likely than we want to believe, that is not the case. And so what we want to make sure is that we treat every scene where a child has been seriously injured or killed as if it could be a homicide. And as long as we're following our agency's policies and we're doing what, you know, our superiors want us to do, we want to make sure that we are starting off with the default position of this could be a homicide and then maybe it turns out to be an accident, maybe it turns out to be something else. But we want to make sure that we don't lose that valuable time and evidence by treating it as an accident when it turns out that it was some intentional act or reckless act that leads to criminal charges. So just a little follow-up to that scenario that you created, how important would it be for law enforcement? And again, you, you mentioned specific policies regarding to an agency, agency, but how important would it be to have a member of the DA staff on scene in a situation like that? That certainly does happen. And some agencies have a policy, um, that if there is a child death, that they will contact the district attorney's office and a district attorney or someone from the DA's office, perhaps an investigator or an assistant district attorney will come out to the scene. That certainly does happen. That can make it easier for law enforcement to have easy access to someone who can answer their questions. Some of that has been, the need for that has been taken away by cell phones. <laughs> The idea that they don't have, you know, officers don't have to wait till they get back to the office or wait till the DA's in the office to have these conversations. But sometimes it is important that a prosecutor respond to the scene and see things in the situation that they're in. And that can be extremely important. But it's also important, the most important thing is to have that communication with the district attorney's office, whether they be at the scene or over the phone, 
whatever it may be, to have that continuing communication with a prosecutor to make sure that you're going about this in a way that's going to be legally defensible, that if there are questions or challenges that arise, that everybody is playing by the same playbook from the beginning to make sure that, you know, this is going the way that it needs to go and we're all doing the best job that we can. So I think that's the most important thing. As far as responding out to the scene, there are certainly scenes that I've been to in the past where it helped me as a prosecutor to envision the scene, um, to really have been able to be there as things were going on and, and in the situation. But I certainly think the most important thing is less the visual aspect and more the communication aspect. Well, speaking of which, that that leads me to back up to our first episode when we were talking about the involvement of law enforcement with child advocacy agencies. And I want, in this final question, as our time is winding down, to go there one more time. So I, I want you to talk about what officers need to know to work together well with the Department of Social Services and the other child welfare agencies when we're in this investigative process? It's really important that everybody work together in any situation, but certainly when there's been a serious injury or a death of a child, because that is really when, number one, emotions are going to be running high and people are going to be very busy, but also very emotional. So I think that it's really important that we allow folks to do their jobs and that we understand that everybody at that scene is going to have a job to do. And it may sometimes conflict with the job that we feel like we need to do. And that's why having open lines of communication about how we're going to handle these things, hopefully in an MDT meeting where we talk about these things and we have continued communication means that we already know when we arrive out on the scene, okay, you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. They've got to do this report. They've got to do this part of the scene. It's really important that we try to manage those things outside of the context of an on-scene investigation. Because again, it's chaotic. It's emotional. There's a lot going on. It's really not the best time to be having a conversation about what your job is and what my job is. And that's how we get some tempers and some conflict on the scene that really isn't serving anybody very well. So it's, I think the most important thing when it comes to child advocacy centers and DSS and other folks who may be involved in these cases is to have com communications and contact with those folks at the early part of your career working in these cases and to maintain that communication so that when you get on the scene, it's already smooth sailing and that can be an easy part of your job instead of a part of your job that's more difficult. And so... I think that understanding what DSS has got to do and what they, their standards are going to be and understanding that you can contact the CAC to have a medical evaluation done on a child that may be involved in the case, that's going to be really important. And so if you're coming to a scene where a child has been seriously injured or killed and you think that the whether it be a sibling in the case of a, a child death or whether it be the injured child who's going to need a medical evaluation, that law enforcement immediately look into getting that medical evaluation. If CPS is involved, again, they can be the ones to do that. They need to be the ones to initiate it. But if not, then law enforcement can do that. And it's really important. These medical evaluations that are done at the CACs are intended to find injuries that may not be apparent to the naked eye. And that can be very important child abuse cases that we have those done and can be important even when we have those done on siblings in child abuse cases 
because a lot of times child abuse is not isolated to the child who we're responding to, but maybe may go on with other children in the home. And so it's important that we continue to use these resources, you know, whether we are dealing with a possible abuse situation or we're dealing with a situation where, unfortunately, we've arrived too late to prevent child abuse, but we're now going to be investigating or prosecuting someone for an injury or a death. All very valuable information. Unfortunately, our time is up. Whitney, thank you again for the time that you have invested in, in answering some very critical questions regarding the investigative process. Uh, I know it is obvious that if somebody picks up the telephone and says, Whitney, here's what I've got, you're going to be able to share the same information with them. So just, I just want to take time to say thank you again. Thanks for having me. Whitney Belich is a child advocacy prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. And in our next episode, as we spotlight Child Advocacy Month, we'll be talking about the reporting procedure. April is Child Advocacy Month, and the Justice Academy is dedicated to joining the many North Carolina agencies working on behalf of those who, not by their own choices, become victims of neglect, physical, or sexual abuse. Our guest for all of our April episodes is Whitney Bellish, the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. Please join us again for our next episode as we continue our discussions on child advocacy in North Carolina. NCJA ten fourteen.